Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name's Brand. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, just as well, I'd love to say welcome to a few if you're new or visiting. Uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning. We'd love to get to know you and help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Like Becky was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. And summer is just like a, a great time to get plugged into a small group. Just a lot, like a lot more relationally driven than content driven in the summer. And so if you just want to get to know people, Summer's a great time to do that, so we'd encourage you to check that out. So, also love to invite you into our summer sermon series. We're calling it Jesus on Every Page. And what we're doing throughout the summer this year is we're taking a look at a bunch of different Old Testament passages. And some you've probably heard of, some maybe you haven't. And what we're doing in all of them is showing how all of them are ultimately, they're not about just showing us, teaching us some moral lesson about who we're supposed to be like or what we should or shouldn't be doing. Instead, all the stories are primarily, their primary goal, their ultimate objective is to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones put this this way. She says, the Bible's a story. At the center of that story is Jesus. Every story whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle that makes all the pieces fit together and reveals the beautiful picture of the gospel. The idea that we've talked about throughout our series so far, that the, the whole Bible, not just the New Testament, is actually all about God and the gospel, that's not something I came up with or some brilliant theologian or some pastor. Instead, we saw how that's what Jesus himself teaches. In John 5, he, he tells the religious leaders that the life and the blessing and the favor from God that they're looking for so by studying the scriptures so diligently that that can only be found if they'll see him as the thing to which all of them point. And likewise, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he begins with Moses and the prophets, and he explains to his disciples what is said about him throughout all the scriptures. And so at the heart of our series this summer is about learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus did, with him at the center of the whole thing. And so we're going to do just that this morning as we study a passage in uh, Judges chapter 16, and a story, probably one you might be familiar with, a story about a guy named Samson. Now, if you grew up in church, then maybe Samson might, the story of Samson might be for you, you might think about him kind of like a biblical version of a superhero. He's like a Fabio kind of character with superhuman strength, right? He defeats countless evil Philistine henchmen, even kills a lion with his bare hands. I mean, like this is a superhero type kind of guy, right? The dude's only weakness, his, his apparent kryptonite is a pair of scissors. That's, that's all he got going on, right? Or maybe, maybe when you think about Samson, you think about maybe a story your youth pastor told you sometime about, about the dangers of giving in to sexual temptation and sin and how destructive that can be in your life, right? And so Samson, he's, he's either this hero that we should kind of venerate or praise, or he's, or he's this very flawed hero that we should try to avoid all his flaws and all his mistakes, right? We should, we should avoid those things. And the problem is, is that neither of those perspectives really works, they don't, neither of those perspectives really hold water because, because uh, Samson, he can't be a hero to imitate, right? Even just like a cursory skim of the couple of chapters and judges that tell his story reveal character flaws that are so deep and pervasive that no parent would want their kid imitating him in almost any way, including Samson's own parents, 
right? And on the other hand, he can't just be a warning, right? He can't just be like this, this, this hero gone bad, like avoid these problems kind of story, because his story begins with the angel of the Lord appearing to this, his hopelessly barren parents and telling them about this miraculous child that they were about to have, who God himself was going to specifically use to deliver his people. And Samson is listed in Hebrews 11 as a hero of faith. And so the question you got to ask is, what do we do with this guy? What do we, what do, we do with Samson? He's, he's not just a hero to to be imitated or one to be avoided. In fact, the way you got to read Samson's story is you got to see he's not actually the hero of his own story at all. So just like every other story we've read this summer, God's the one who's the hero. The point of the story is to show us something about him and something about the power of the gospel. And so what I want to show you this morning is that it's not Samson's strength that's on display in his story. It's God's. It's God's strength to save his people, not because they are strong, but in spite of the fact that they are hopelessly, helplessly weak and blind. And that God, his strength is so great that he uses even the strongest of sinners to save his people. It is such an encouraging story. And if we'll see that Samson's story is ultimately about God's strength to save that's on full display, right, in the midst of all of Samson's blindness and weakness, then what's going to happen is we're going to get a glimpse of the better Savior, the true and better Savior that Samson was always meant to point us to. And so I can't wait to show you Jesus in the pages of Exodus chapter 16 and the story of Samson. And so with that in mind, Let's pray. We'll, we'll dive right into God's word this morning. So, God, thanks so much for you. Thanks that uh, the whole Bible, every corner of it's ultimately about you and about the gospel. And so we ask this morning, as we come to this story that sometimes can be really familiar and can feel full of a lot of tension, God, we pray that you might help us to see that it's not really about Samson, that it's ultimately about you and your strength and your power to save, uh, not because we're strong, but in spite of the fact that we're not. And so, God, might the good news of the gospel be good news to us this morning. Um, empower me to speak those truths. Enable our hearts to hear and respond rightly to you. And might you get all the credit for being the one who is strong and the one who can save. And so we pray this morning. All those things, God, for our good, and most of all, so that you might be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. We're going to take one chapter out of Samson's story, Judges chapter 16. If you look back, you'll see that Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, those four chapters, that's kind of Samson's story in the Bible. We don't have time to go down the deep trail there. That would be a whole story in sadness and disaster we don't have time for. So we're going to do, one, we're gonna just do the, kind of the completion of his story this way, and, and it'll be the part that maybe is most memorable. We'll see if we can't make some sense out of it this morning. It begins this way in, in verse 1 of chapter 16. One day, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute, and he went in to spend the night with her. The, the people of Gaza were told, Samson's here. And so they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city, city gate. And they made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. And then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, together with the two posts, tore them loose, bar and all, and lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you the 1,100 shekels of silver. And so Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. And Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. 
Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and, and she tied him with them. And with the men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. And so the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You've made a fool of me. You've lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. And he said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that can never be used, I'll become as weak as any other man. And so Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. And then with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off of his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into, uh, into the fabric of the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. And so while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his hair and wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. And again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom and with the fabric. And, and she said to him, How can you say that I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more, he has told me everything. And so the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in, one, in their hands. And after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and to begin to subdue him, and his strength left him. And then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza. And binding him with bronze shackles, they set him grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and celebrate, saying, Our gods delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the, when the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our gods delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let, let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and on all people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. And then his brothers and his whole family went down to get him, and they brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Neshatal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He led Israel for 20 years. All right, now, before we dive into this uh, really strange story, conflicting story here in Judges 16, uh, 
Um, it's really important that we have a little bit of context for the book of Judges as a whole, which is where this story is found. And that's important because it's really, have, you have to understand some of that context story to understand what Samson's story is all about. You see, the book of Judges as a whole records this especially dark period in Israel's history. After 40 years of wandering in the desert for not trusting God, they'd been finally led into the promised land by a guy named Joshua. And God had given them victory over all their enemies. And so they'd taken possession of this land that God had promised them. But instead of worshiping God for all he'd done, instead of obeying his commands, after Joshua dies, the Israelites, they just become increasingly and repeatedly characterized by disobedience and outright idolatry, right? Not only do they just disregard God's commands altogether, they start worshiping other gods altogether, right? They were supposed to be a light to the nation, showing the world what God was like and, and who he was, and yet what we see throughout the book of Judges is that they just increasingly become more and more and more like the world around them. And so just as he promised he would do if they turned from him, God allows the Israelites to be attacked and defeated and oppressed by neighboring people, and the Israelites would eventually repent of their sin and idolatry, and they'd cry out to God for help, and God would raise up a leader uh, who, who he empowers to rescue his people, and they were known in the book of Judges as judges. And just as soon as the people had been delivered, they'd they just dive headfirst right back into sin. And so the whole cycle would loop again, right? And by the time we get to Samson's story in chapters 13 through 16, we are on the, the seventh such loop of rebellion, oppression, cry for help and deliverance. And yet this time, what, what you notice if you read carefully is that things have gotten so bad that God's people haven't even cried out for help this time. They've rebelled against him, they've been conquered, and yet they're not crying out for help. They're so entrenched in idolatry and sin that they don't even know they need saving anymore. Just like Samson at the end of the chapter, God's people are blind. They cannot see. And that context is really important because when we're reading the story of Samson, the author of Judges, what he means for you to do is to see Samson as kind of this embodiment of the people of Israel as a whole. See, Samson's story is really the story of God's people just summed up in the life of one dude. They think they're strong, and yet they are blind to the reality of their weakness and their desperate need for God's saving rescue in their lives. They cannot even see their need for it. So as we take a look at Samson's story this morning, what I want to show you, I want to show you three aspects of his story, of his blindness, that put God's strength to save on display, not Samson's. Three ways that Samson's blindness, not his strength, shows God's strength. And so help you see how his story points us to Jesus. Well, first is simply this, that Samson was blind to the source of his strength. He was just as blind to the source of his strength as the Philistine rulers were, right? In verse 5, they offered Delilah a king's ransom to get it out of him. And after a couple of failed attempts, she finally wears him down. I just love that section where it says like he just, she just like bothered him until he was sick to death of it, right? In verse 16, Samson tells her that he's been a Nazarite dedicated to God from birth and that his uncut hair is the source of, so the, the source of his strength. And yet, the part he conveniently leaves out, the little detail that he seems to leave out there, right, is that never cutting his hair, that, that that wasn't the only commitment that being a Nazarite made, right? If you look back in chapter 13 at the, the beginning of the story of Samson's birth, you'll see that the, the other two aspects of a Nazarite's vows were never touching a dead body and never drinking alcohol. 
And if there's two things that the author of Judges makes real clear Samson did a lot of, it's touching dead bodies and drinking alcohol, right? Like chapter 14, the party at his wedding is literally translated as a week-long keg party. In chapter 15, he kills more than a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. Like he, he's not keeping the vows, right? Like besides the fact that chapter 16 begins with him sleeping around with two different pagan women, like this dude is not dedicated to God in any meaningful way whatsoever, right? And so when he says that he's been dedicated to God as a Nazarite since birth, right, there should be a strong ish at the end of that, right? Like ish, kind of, right? And see, and what all that reveals is that Samson had no idea what the source of his strength really was. Samson has no idea. See, he's not the most brilliant guy in history, but I am willing to bet he didn't think he was telling Delilah the secret to his strength, right? It's not like he had actually kept his Nazarite vows in any meaningful way. It's not like he has lived as one who is dedicated to God. In fact, when you read his story throughout the chapters in, in Judges, the one thing that's clear is that the only thing Samson is dedicated to is himself. That's the only thing. By his own reasoning, if being a Nazarite with the source of his strength, he should have lost his strength a long time ago. See, but the most compelling evidence of his blindness to the source of his strength is found in verse 20. Right, his hair is gone, Delilah wakes him up with his call to arms, but notice when he gets up, he doesn't say that he didn't notice his hair was gone. Because, spoiler alert, there's no way you don't notice that, Right? I get a haircut every six or eight weeks, and I can tell, right? If you haven't got your haircut for 40 years, you can tell when all of it's gone, right? Like, it's not, like, you're not like, ah, I guess that 40 pounds of whatever was there. Like, I couldn't, like, you can tell, right? The passage doesn't say he didn't know his hair was gone. It says he didn't know that the Lord had left him. See, God's empowering presence is the source of Samson's strength. The whole point, right? Samson is not strong. God is strong. And it's God's empowering presence that is the source of Samson's strength. He doesn't have anything of his own. And Samson is blind to that to the very end of his life until in verse 20 he calls out to God and he says, God, strengthen me once more. So he finally gets that it was God's strength that was his, not his own. Sadly, it took the removal of his eyes to open them to the truth that it was God's empowering presence that was the source of his great strength all along. And yet, God, and yet Samson had finally seen the source of his strength. What we see, though, is that he dies still being blind to the purpose of his strength. He's not just blind to the source of it, he's blind to the purpose of it. See, it's easy to think that Samson's strength is this sign of God's favor and blessing. But again, a careful reading of the story reveals that Samson never uses his strength for God's purposes, not a single time. Samson's calling from his birth was to be a devoted instrument of God, set apart for God's purposes and his glory to rescue the Israelites. Yet, and yet Samson's life reveals that he was devoted to his own glory, not God's. When he wins battles, you can go back and read this. He literally makes up songs about himself and sings them, right? Like, if that's not somebody who's got some narcissistic problems, right? Like, he's not devoted to God's glory. He is really committed to his own glory, right? It's not until his death while the Philistines are singing the praises of their gods that he even acknowledges that his strength is from God. 
Additionally, throughout the account of his life, we see that the only thing Samson uses his strength for is himself. He uses it to get whatever he sees, whatever he wants, whether it's women or food or drink or victory over his enemies, right? Or like we see at the end of this passage, to get revenge, right? His prayer at the end is about him, the whole thing, right? He says, he, he's asked, right? He prays, God, remember me, strengthen me, let me get revenge for my eyes. You, you notice how God's not even present in there? Like there's no motivation about that whatsoever. One commentator sums it up this. He says, although Samson is no longer driven by what he sees, his physical eyes continue to determine his actions all he seeks is personal vengeance, right? He's not concerned about his people. He's not concerned about God, whose name and reputation is directly tied with his own. He's concerned about himself like he always was. And so the question that you got to ask, like the question, just like there's this tension here. Why the heck would God empower this dude's stupid motives? Like why would God be like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Revenge, love that, yep. Yep, go for it, buddy, right? I'm on that team. It not, not only does that not make sense, like it just feels completely wrong, right? And messed up, doesn't it? Well, the answer to that question is simply this. God's purposes for Samson's strength and Samson's purposes for his strength are not the same. They're not the same. God doesn't empower Samson because he has the right motives and goals. He does it in spite of the fact that Samson has the absolute wrong goals in mind. You see, from the very beginning, Samson's story is that God raised him up to begin the process of rescuing his people from the hands of the Philistines. And that is exactly what Samson accomplishes in the end. Even though he is blind to God's real purposes for his strength, one commentator captured it really well. He said this, Samson's story is this fascinating study in the relationship between human freedom and divine sovereignty. It shows the Lord working all things together for the good of his people, even when they are least aware of it, and despite the waywardness of the one he had chosen to use. He is still the same gracious and sovereign God today, for he still works all things together for the good of his people, whether they are aware of it or not. See, it's God's sovereignty that's on display in his empowering of Samson at the very end of the story. God is not condoning Samson's motives. He is using his self-centered, jacked-up, revenge-driven motives to bring about his own divine will and purposes, which are not the same as Samson's. Right? He's delivering his people from the hands of the Philistines, all of whom their leaders were crushed in Samson's blow. Just like he used Joseph's brother's evil intentions in selling him into slavery to bring about their own salvation at the end of the book of Genesis, if you remember. Same thing happens here. What Samson means for evil, God intends for good. See, his purposes and God's purposes are not the same. You see, Samson died blind to his calling and the purpose of his strength. And the closing remarks that he killed more in death than his life, they are not intended to be a compliment. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, this man with, un with an unprecedentedly high calling and extraordinary divine gifts had wasted his life. Indeed, he accomplished more for God dead than alive. It is a sad story. It's a tragic one. 
So Samson is blind to the source of his strength being God's, and he's blind to the purpose of his strength being about God's glory and God's purposes to rescue his people, not his own purposes. But lastly, what we see is that the thing Samson was most blind to is his lack of true strength and his own need for rescue. You see, Samson was physically strong. There is no doubt about it. In chapter 15, 3,000 men are sent to go arrest him, and they're not sure that's going to be enough. And so physically he's strong, but in every other way he is weak and blind. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, this man is ugly. He's disrespectful to his parents, callous towards his calling, without any loyal to his own people, compromising in his ethic, rude to his wife, flippant with his tongue, driven by lust and eroticism and appetite. The only way in which good can come from this man is by God overpowering him with his spirit. See, Samson's strength, it blinded him to the reality of his own weakness. The reason he told Delilah everything he did is because he never thought he was in danger in the first place. And that's exactly what Delilah and the Philistines wanted. You see, historians will tell you that the most powerful empires in the world, they don't conquer with cruelty, they seduce their enemies. They make them feel as though their conquering is good. And that's exactly what the Philistines did. They were indeed militarily powerful, but the true force of their, of their conquering lied in the tactics that they used to conquer, right? They weren't cruel and vicious. Rather, they slowly assimilated their captives into their own culture and in doing so, eliminated them altogether. So like I mentioned, that's exactly what happens to the Israelites during Samson's life. Right? They had rebelled against God. God had let the Philistines come and conquer them Right? But this time they never cry out for help. They think it's fine. And yet God still raises up a judge, Samson, to deliver them. It's gotten so bad that even the one God uses to deliver his people doesn't know he's even delivering them and isn't even aware that they need delivering in the first place. Like the nation of Israel as a whole, Samson is blind to his own weakness and his own need for God to rescue him from his own sin and from his own idolatry and from his own rebellion. And the truth is that Samson's story is not just an embodiment of the state of God's people in this time. It's our story too. With disheartening regularity, you and I, we reenact the cycle of judges. Our hearts and attention are all too frequently drawn away from God by the things and the thinking of the world around us, and we become blind to our own weakness and our own need for rescue. And we're seduced by the lure of sin and the worship of idols, not even realizing that what we're living for is in outright opposition to God in the first place. We're blind to the dangers around us, but more than that, we're blind to the source of any strength we do have. Like Samson, we're concerned with our own glory far more than God's, and we take credit for things that he does, or we're blind to the fact that it's him working in our lives in the first place. Proverbs 16 says it this way, that a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. The career you have, the family you have, the blessings in your life that you have, right? That's not your doing. That's not the way that you've just earned it or that you deserved it. That's God who's the one who is giving those things to you. That's not you. It's his graciousness to you. 
And so we're blind to the source of our strength, but we're blind to the purpose of it all together. Like Samson and the Israelites, we are often unaware of the high calling God has given us to be his kingdom people, to be his ambassadors in the world. And we fritter away our lives just as Samson did with his. And instead of living for God, we live for ourselves in the pursuit of our own passions and our own desires, even though they never satisfy and they always leave us longing. And so Samson's story is really the story of Israel, but it's not just his their story. It's ours too. And he is a reminder that we need God's strength to rescue us from ourselves. The good news is, is that that very truth is part of Samson's story as well. See, Samson isn't just a picture of God's blind and wayward people. He is a foreshadowing of the one God would use to rescue them altogether. Verse 31, the passage closes by saying that Samson led Israel for 20 years. In Hebrew, the word that's translated there is literally the word judged. Right? Samson judged Israel for 20 years. And judges in Israel were not people who were in some official position. It wasn't like an office or in a court or anything like that. You see, judges weren't like presidents or kings. Judges were saviors. They were deliverers. And so when Israel was on the brink of disaster, they were saved by the judges. Every one of the judges throughout the whole book are flawed in some really deep and profound ways. And after every one of them rescues God's people, they fall right back into this de- depressing cycle of rebellion and sin again, all over again. And the nature of the judges and of the temporary deliverance that that they bring, it underscores two really important things throughout the book. One is that God is the one who is doing the delivering. He's the one who is raising up these judges to rescue his people. But more than that, there needs to be an ultimate divine rescue from the source of rebellion, not just the consequences of it. Because the cycle just keeps looping See, and that's where the story gets really good because you see, Samson life sums up the entire message of Judges and it points us beyond the book. You see, Samson points us to the strength of the ultimate Savior, the ultimate judge, who would in the midst of our blindness rescue and deliver us. You see, Samson is God's appointed Savior of his people. He foreshadows Jesus, the ultimate Savior, but he does it as the anti-type. You see, for in every way that Samson fails, Jesus succeeds. Samson only used his strength to accomplish his own will, and yet Jesus relentlessly uses his strength for the will of the Father. Samson's life was characterized by disregard for his calling, and yet Jesus' life was characterized by unwavering commitment to his own Samson, whose strength was fleeting, was valued beyond compare. A king's ransom is given for him. And yet Jesus, whose strength is beyond compare, he's betrayed for this fleeting gain of 30 pieces of silver. Samson needed to be humbled to see the source of his strength. And yet Philippians 2 tells us that in humility, Jesus laid aside his own willingly. Samson was defeated and enslaved at his death, but Jesus offered himself willingly. No one took his life from him. Samson said, let me die with my enemies, and yet Jesus says, let me die for them. Samson's death was motivated by revenge. His strength revealed only his weakness, and yet Jesus' death was motivated by forgiveness. In weakness, his true strength was revealed. Samson's death filled the world with the bodies of his enemies. 
And yet what we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus' death fills the world with his body, the church, all of whom used to be his enemies. God turned his back on Samson because of his sin. And yet God turned his back on Jesus because of our sin laid on him. Samson was blind, and yet Jesus saw clearly. You see, in every way that Samson fails, Jesus does not. He's the ultimate judge, the perfect and unflawed Samson, and the victory he wins on behalf of his people is greater than any victory Samson could ever have won. Another commentator sums it up this way. He says, the deliverers God mercifully raised up for the Israelites were flawed and temporary, but the ultimate deliverer, Jesus, has no flaws. And so his rescue of those who believe in him is complete and everlasting. His deliverance extends beyond the rescue from sin's consequences to the rescue from sin itself. You see, it's Jesus on every page. If Samson's story is just about you, if it's just about some moral, if it's just about like, yeah, be strong for God, well, your weakness is just a laughing point at that. If it's, hey, just avoid temptation and sin, you just, you don't do it. None of us will ever be used by God if that's the point of the story. Instead, the point is to leave us longing for a Savior who would bring a more complete, a more full, a better salvation than Samson ever could. And the fact that he points us to a God who saves, not because we're strong, but in, in spite of our blindness and our foolishness. See, that's the good news of Samson's story. And the good news for us is that by trusting in Jesus' victory over our enemies of Satan and sin and death, we get to live in his strength, not in our own. See, the power of his strength, it changes everything. When it's all about you, you live for yourself and in your own strength, and yet when you're living in his strength, what happens is you get to live motivated by grace instead of guilt. See, the picture painted in Judges in the story of Samson and throughout the Bible is that God's people are not made up of those who are morally right or militarily powerful or politically brilliant. They are made up of people who he has rescued from their sin who were blind but who can now see. See, so many people think that the Bible is just this collection of fables that kind of just teach us these moral lessons about that those, the people God saves are those who live these perfect lives, and yet that's not the message of the Bible at all. Tim Keller, he sums it up this way. He says, the message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives us his grace to people who don't ask for it, who don't deserve it, and who don't even fully appreciate it after they get it. In Romans 4, Paul says it's the ungodly who by faith trust God to make them right with him that are saved. See, if there is any moral to be learned from Samson's story, it is the moral that God's grace abounds to people who don't deserve it. See, what happens is when you're motivated by God's grace, it leads you to this kind of life that's characterized by a humble dependence on his strength, not your own. See, you live empowered by the Spirit's strength instead of your own. You see, Samson's physical strength was only matched by the strength of his own desires. Whatever he saw, he just got it. 
We seem like Samson. We're never going to defeat our own desires with our own strength, no matter how strong we are. We need the power of one who is greater than our own. We need God's strength. And in Jesus, in his death, through faith in him, we get his spirit sent to live inside of us, to empower us to live as his people rejecting sin and living in accordance with our calling and his commands. You see, the key to true strength is to acknowledge your own weakness and to rely on the one whose strength alone can give you what you need. When you do that, what happens is that you begin to live for his glory instead of your own. You see, Samson's life is this endless loop of Samson believing that true life and fulfillment and satisfaction, it's found by by giving in to every desire he has without any limits. And yet what we see in the gospel is that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, doing what was hard, fulfilling his calling, and freeing us so that instead of living as slaves to ourselves, we're set free to live for him. See, and every week when we take communion, that's what we're remembering and celebrating. We're reminding ourselves of all that Jesus has done for us, of his body and blood that are broken and shed so that we might instead be set free to live for him and his purposes, not our own, and to rely on his strength instead of our own. See, communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with God in any way. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember Jesus, to remember him as the source of any strength you have, and to remind ourselves of all that he has done so that we might be filled with love and gratitude for him that looks like lives given, dedicated to him and his glory. And so as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you've put your trust in Jesus to be the one who saves you by his strength and not your own, then I want to encourage you during our time of communion, go back and take communion. There's a Tape on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder again of all that Jesus has done, of his strength willingly laid down, given for you. And if you're here this morning, you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're still figuring out what following him even means, or, or maybe what you're realizing is that you are living a life that's dedicated to yourself. I don't want to encourage you. Hold off on taking communion. God's not trying to get you to go through religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that surrenders and trusts in him completely. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is, and we would love to help you get to know him. Wherever you're at, though, this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. As we sing, as we celebrate communion, as we worship him together, talk with him, ask him to help you to see his strength made known and available to you in the person and the work of Jesus. And ask him in response to his surpassing strength that has saved you not because you're strong, but in spite of all your weakness and blindness. Ask him to empower you to surrender all the strength you have to him so that you might live not for yourself but for him and his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for you. We're thankful that the story of Samson is not just a lesson about how to make ourselves worthy of being used by you. But God, we're just grateful that he points us to you. 
in all his flaws, in all his failings, he leaves us longing for the true and better judge, a savior who would rescue us from ourselves and who wouldn't do it blindly, accidentally, but who would do it willingly, purposefully, knowingly. And so in all of the ways Samson fails, we see the good news of the gospel in the way that Jesus did not. Thank you for sending us a Savior who is strong enough to save the most blind and weakest and foolish of sinners, like me. And thank that that good news empowers us, Lord God, to live no longer for ourselves, but for the one who gave himself for us. Would you do that for us? Help the gospel to be good news that empowers lives lived for you. Amen.